five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. Just a note to start with, later this month, we're launching our new pop-up podcast, Terranauts, hosted by Ian Christie. Next week, we'll have more details on the launch of the new podcast. Okay, now on to today's podcast. My guest today is Grant Bonin, Chief Engineer, Space Systems at Rocket Lab. Grant is making his second appearance on the Space Cube podcast. The last time was in the spring of 2018 when he was the Chief Technology Officer at Deep Space Industries. In today's podcast, we find out more about Grant's departure from Deep Space Industries and his current activities at Rocket Lab. Listen in. Welcome back, Grant, to the Space Q podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Mark. Before we talk about your current job at Rocket Lab, it's been a year and a half since you were last on the show, and a lot has transpired in that time for you. Uh, about a year ago, you took some time away from Deep Space Industries, and then the company was sold. Now that some time has passed, what are your thoughts about your time at DSI and what transpired? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question, and there, <laughs> there are a few different ways to answer that. I guess the short story is that I'm, I'm very happy with how most of that worked out. Um, I came into Deep Space Industries, and, and for listeners who are unfamiliar with that company, it was a company founded with the long-term goal of facilitating the use of space resources, the mining of asteroids, um, but trying to follow a short-term roadmap that would create all the technologies necessary to build a resource-driven in-space economy. Uh, and we really created that company with that founding vision, worked backwards from the vision to figure out what the roadmap would be. A lot of it was predicated on trying to create a water economy in space. Can we build, um, can we build the internal combustion engine while we're prospecting for oil? Because we thought oil would be, the, uh, or water would be the oil of the solar system. We brought a lot of products into the marketplace, in particular propulsion products that could run off of water. We sold and flew a very large number of those, actually, and they are continuing to uh, fly to this date. Um, and in fact, uh, recently, another one of them launched uh, last uh, uh, on the 19th of August uh, with Black Sky Global 4. Um, and so I'm very happy that Deep Space Industries was able to move the needle on getting people socialized to the idea of using water as a propellant. And I inter interacted in a different context with another customer recently who was looking for water-based propulsion systems because they said, quote, uh, we consider water to be a heritage, uh, very, very beneficial propellant for us. It's unambiguously launch safe, very simple to work with, et cetera, et cetera. So what we wanted to do at Deep Space Industries was create this ecosystem of customers now that could be serviced by the future product that we were going after, which was, you know, again, water from the moon or asteroids. And I feel that we moved the needle on that. Uh, it was very heartened to see new companies um, really kind of at a rate of one every month at this point, starting to develop everything from large tugboats to smaller satellite thrusters, all of which are running off of water. So to the extent that we cared about creating a water economy, and uh, I really feel that we moved the needle there. I also feel very happy that we moved the needle on the regulatory side. Um, if we rewind five or six years ago, there was no recognition 
by any country of our right to harvest resources from space. And now both the United States and Luxembourg have legislation in place that does recognize the rights of private companies to, to fish in those international waters. And so that's extremely heartening as well. Uh, now, the company was acquired by Bradford Space, as you identified, um, around the turn of the year. Uh, and the leadership there continues to develop the bread and butter products that we develop these space industries, in particular, these water propulsion systems. They continue to follow the roadmap that we laid out. So I wish them every success. But definitely around that time, uh, I obviously moved on and, uh, you know, continue to kind of sit back and hope that the groundwork that we laid and that others laid as well, like planetary resources, will uh, um, will continue to be useful for the next generation of companies that are trying to move the needle here. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Now, with respect to Bradford, uh, they are obviously – they bought a technology um, – and uh, they're using it, they're selling it. Uh, but the vision of marrying, you know, that as a precursor into then building something that was going to go and, um, you know, look for asteroids. I mean, do they st- do they have that vision that DSI had, or, or are they just really focused on uh, the product of the the propulsion system? Well, I think it's I think it's both the. The thing I was musing about this with somebody the other day, the thing that the thing that I think deep space industries accomplished but didn't realize it was, uh, and this is kind of to the point I made a minute ago, we created um, a product that had incredible product market fit. Um, around the time the DSI was being sold by Bradford, we had customers that were trying to you know, pull these propulsion systems out of our hands. And that's great. Uh, the dogs want the dog food, so to speak. And, and great products are bought, not sold, right? So to the extent that we kind of initially started thinking of water propulsion as a wedge product, and then it became the signature product, um, it wasn't the win that we necessarily wanted, but it was an unambiguous win. And Bradford has to be responsible in uh, attacking that opportunity and serving its customers and continuing to enhance value for its shareholders. Um, but at the same time, there is no less interest amongst Bradford to the extent that I'm aware and stay fairly close with their leadership. Um, they do want to take the next step. They do want to continue to develop what we were calling the Explorer platform. And I think they're still calling it the Explorer platform, which would be a multi-mission microsatellite bus that has high delta V that's fit for very low cost exploration. Um, you know, and we, we wanted to do and this actually ties into work that I used to do, ties into work that I'm doing right now. You don't have to rewind the clock very far to see a world where our future in space depended on the decisions of three billionaires and four countries. And small, low-cost spacecraft in general create, allow, and small, low-cost launch, um, dedicated launch for those small spacecraft, creates a space program for the rest of us. Uh, It's extremely exciting from my standpoint. And so Bradford's responding to the opportunity of trying to democratize space exploration. Um, they're trying to build a small, low-cost spacecraft that can go and prospect for asteroids, can go and explore the moon, can service uh, opportunities in geostationary orbit, and a whole bunch of other missions in between. Um, so they continue to follow that roadmap that we designed, and I'm very happy about that. At the same time, a lot of their staff have moved on to other companies uh, who are continuing to pursue these visions or that, that founding vision in different ways. Uh, examples like Momentous Space, for example, which want to do water-based tugboats in space due to connecting flights between where a launch vehicle drops you off and where you actually want to end up. 
Uh, and so the, I guess the, the overall vision has percolated out into the broader industry. Um, and so I'm, you know, pretty happy about that. Uh, and I am cautiously optimistic that Bradford will continue to pursue the vision that we've laid out. Uh, I think that they'll take uh, a very pragmatic approach to it, um, as they want to do. Uh, but, um, I'm not worried that the vision is dead whatsoever. All right. So one sort of last question related to the past, but ties into the present. Um, after the sale of DSI to, to Bradford, you found yourself looking for a job. We talked offline at the time. Uh, you had uh, options, as you had previously mentioned to me. Why did you opt to work for Rocket Lab? And for our audience who may not be familiar with you moving over to Rocket Lab, can you explain your role there? Oh, sure. So, yeah, I left Deep Space Industries uh, towards the end of the year, and I was I was fairly burnt out. Um, the 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 I guess the grind of trying to stand up a startup in Silicon Valley, uh, especially one with very audacious goals, uh, was very difficult and. Um, so I was determined to <laughs> I was determined to take a good long while off and reset, and uh, yeah, and around the the end of last calendar year, I said, oh, maybe I should maybe I should go and you know get a job or something, as one does. Um, but uh, uh, with Rocket Lab, it was it was kind of curious. There there'd been some feelers and, and nothing that I was particularly interested in, uh, but when I started speaking with Rocket Lab and in particular speaking with its CEO Peter Beck. Um, it was an instant, uh, instant passionate reawakening. I guess um, I had always been excited about Rocket Lab, about what Rocket Lab was trying to do, which is dedicated small spacecraft, and I think the company's motto is lifting human potential. But it was really, you know, spending uh, an hour plus change talking initially with Peter that I got hooked, and I kind of said to myself. Well, this is incredible leadership. It's an incredible vision for where this company wants to go. He's got an incredible vision for how we can enable this industry. And uh, what he was hiring for uh, on the, I guess, on the other side of um, successfully fielding the electron launch vehicle was uh, somebody to run the, the the space segment or the space systems group that they were standing up at Rocket Lab. Uh, and the goal there, and so, so my role is as the chief engineer of space systems at Rocket Lab, and the goal there is to take our the third stage of our vehicle, which we call the kick stage. Um, it's a small little rocket stage that gives us very precise orbital insertion capability and evolve that into uh, a multi-mission platform, uh, a small spacecraft platform. Uh, now, this, this had been on Rocket Lab's roadmap for some time, but uh, basically the organization hit a point where they said, okay, we're launching successfully. Now let's go build satellites so that we can become the one-stop shop for people who want to build an entire space mission. Uh, now, that's that's kind of useful for at least, uh, I think it's useful, but I'm biased because if you think of the um, the canonical way that somebody goes out and buy, does a space mission, they might go to a big prime contractor uh, who, and then that prime contractor might go and buy a satellite from somebody, a payload from somebody else. They might go to a launch broker who will then arrange a launch for them and they'll go to a ground segment, ground operations provider and they'll pull that all together, and it's it's like herding cats. It can be very inefficient. And what the vision for Rocket Lab is is to be the one-stop shop where we bundle everything together um, and sell it to you and really streamline the process of undertaking a space mission so that you can focus on the thing that actually matters, making money, building a payload or 
developing a service that makes you money. Um, so many companies cannibalize so much money building spacecraft um, or dealing with intermediaries that can get them a rocket or get them a spacecraft or get them a payload. We want to completely wipe away all of that inefficiency and be the place you go to to do soup to nuts space mission design and execution. And so uh, we call that the spacecraft program that we're doing, Photon. Um, it's our launch vehicle's Electron. Electrons emit photons if uh, they're sufficiently excited. Um, so uh, they they kind of bundle together where the third stage of our rocket can be configured as a satellite if you want it to be a satellite. It can be configured as just the third stage of our rocket if you want it that way. Uh, or a whole bunch of intermediate configurations depending on what makes sense for a given customer and a given application. And we really see that as a way of pulling away. I'll butcher this quotation, but it's the... The Heinlein, um, you know, once you're in, once you can launch to low Earth orbit, you're halfway to anywhere in the solar system. Uh, the photon program is there to give us the second half. And you came in to run the program, but was the program your idea, or was that idea already germinating at, at Rocket Lab? Oh, it had, it had been germinating for a while. Um, this is one of the things that really attracted me to the company in general, and Peter Beck in particular, was that. Um, this had been part of the roadmap for a long time, and it was just time to start executing it. So he brought me in to take that from his vision to reality, uh, which is what uh, I have the privilege of building a team here to uh, attempt to do. Now, have you announced any customers for this? Um, we haven't announced any customers. The first commercial uh, use of Photon as a spacecraft will be mid-year next year. Um, the first Pathfinder launch that we're going to do to uh, test some of the equipment additions that we're making to turn this into a satellite uh, will have flight ready towards the end of this calendar year. Um, and no, no, no customers that have been announced yet, but this pro product will be in commercial service mid-year next year. Now, and we are taking orders now, so. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you are. Now, uh, some of the audience might not understand this reference, but it almost sounds like, in a way, um, you're going to try and take away business from the Space Flight Lab in Toronto. Well, I actually see it as completely complementary. Um, so it, it all comes back to what makes sense for a given customer. Um, if a given customer needs a dedicated white glove launch service for you know, payloads that are CubeSat class to, you know, microsatellite class, 150 kilogram type spacecraft, we'll launch them and we'll launch them happily. And we really want to enable everybody who has a great idea uh, to get into space. Um, on the flip side, though, it might make sense for somebody who just has a camera or an imager, a sensor, an experimental radio uh, to just fly as a hosted payload with us. Maybe they don't want to go out and buy a complete spacecraft or stand up a complete spacecraft program. Maybe they just want data. So in that kind of concept of operations, we would launch, maybe deploy a whole bunch of CubeSats. Um, and then we would continue to operate that hosted payload for months to years uh, to really streamline that for the the, 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 the downstream customer. Um, it's really about what makes sense. If somebody wants to buy our Photon vehicle as a complete satellite solution, um, we are in a class that's, I think, with that vehicle, uh, larger mass, much larger power capability than kind of the, the offerings of SFL. So I think uh, it's a very complimentary fit. Um, I don't see this as taking away business from anybody. I see it as giving people more options. All right. So you totally 
turn that around on me, <laughs> which is good. Um, now, okay. Rocket Lab, getting back to the original uh, business of Rocket Lab, uh, and which is launching payloads, uh, Rocket Lab has slowly been progressing, including increasing its, its launch cadence. You've had four successful launches this year for a total of eight overall, and you have another one coming up in September, I believe. How many, other, how many more are planned for the rest of the year beyond this September launch? Our, our stated goal for the calendar year was to be able to fly once a month. Um, so it depends on, yeah, to a very large extent, customer readiness. Um, but we want to be flying once a month uh, by the time Christmas rolls around. And then our goal for next year is to be able to fly once every two weeks. Um, so we've already got our own uh, launch site that we call Launch Complex 1, LC1, that's on the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand. That's what we've been flying out of so far. It's a stunning place to launch out of, just shameless plug. But we're also building a second launch complex uh, on Wallops uh, in Virginia uh, to be able to support a large degree of parallelism, parallelizing of flights uh, so that we can be able to fly, you know, once every two weeks. And from there, um, the limiting factors end up being uh, really regulatory. Um, can regulators keep up with the demand that we see in the launch cadence that we want to continue to dial up? And we think that they can. We work very closely and in a very positive way with the FAA, with the FCC, with NOAA to make sure that we can uh, get our paperwork in order to be able to achieve these launch cadences. But, uh, you know, for example, Launch Complex 1 in, in New Zealand is licensed for us to be able to fly as much as, as quickly as every 72 hours. So it's really going to it's really going to depend on uh, what the market can support. But you know, this year, uh, we want to be approaching uh, once a month. Again, by the time Christmas rolls around next year, we want to be flying every two weeks. And we've got uh, everything coming into place to be able to hit those goals. Um, and, um, and I think you're also aware that at uh, the small satellite conference in Utah this year, we also announced our intent to begin uh, over the next handful of flights uh, recovering the first stage of our launch vehicle to achieve partial reusability. And that will, you know, recovering that asset can even further help us increase our rate so that we can meet the demand that we see emerging and evolving um, from the small satellite market. Now, yes, uh, I was going to ask you about reusability, and I still will. But before we get to that, um, what about manufacturing? Uh, are you able to, like, how, how many electrons are you able to churn out these days? Um, uh, it's on the order of one a month uh, to support, you know, a flight rate that's on the order of once a month uh, that we're, you know, gunning for right now. Um, production's challenging, uh, as I think uh, a lot of people are aware. Um, and this is this is kind of why we look at a lot of the emerging potential competitors we see as um, not imminent threats. Uh, the, the, I think I think that Pete Beck would say the re the real challenges for Rocket Lab didn't happen. Uh, coming up on our first flight, they happened after we had to start scaling and producing. And there's there's a there's a storied history of companies that have to make the transition from okay they've got a product to okay now we have to scale it and produce it and shift a lot of the organization's philosophy from onesie twosies to we are going to be churning these out. And it's uh, those challenges are exacerbated by uh, in aerospace because um, you know nothing happens in high volume in aerospace. 
So even when we talk about producing a large number of launch vehicles, we're not talking about mass production in the same way that any other industry realizes it. Uh, so there, there are definitely production challenges, but right now it's on the order of once a month and uh, we're, you know, continuously improving our production process to be able to achieve higher and higher um, production cadence uh, as we get into 2020. Now, you use the word imminent threat, so I'll just use it as well. I mean, there are over 100 um, companies trying to, to, to build a case, a business case for launch capability. Um, are there any that are an imminent threat? I mean, Vector, we thought was going to uh, uh, move forward uh, sooner rather than later, but, you know, their funding got pulled and, well, we saw what happened with that. Um, so are there any companies out there that you would consider an imminent threat? And of those 100 plus, and I think uh, we had talked before that there was now up to 140 companies trying to, to, to build launch, small, small launch vehicles, how many of those are, are actually going to succeed? Well, that's, a, that's a great question. And, and as you identified, there were 140 uh, or so by my count at the beginning of the call. It could have easily changed over the last 20 minutes or so. Um, the, uh, uh, the number of people who are coming, who, who want to come into this market continues to increase. And it astonishes me because, um, not only is it very, very difficult to get into, but, um, it doesn't seem like it reflects a sophisticated understanding of either what the market is going to do, nor what makes a launch vehicle successful. Uh, so, and, and what I mean by that is that, uh, I mean, first of all, when you look at the market projections, um, that include a lot of the proposed mega constellations. You have to be discerning about how many of those you really believe are going to work out. And of that total market, how much of it is really meaningfully addressable? Uh, you, you know, you can't, a launch vehicle company can't come onto the scene and declare SpaceX's Starlink as part of their total addressable market because it's not addressable. That will always be hardwired to SpaceX launches. Uh, but you still see people do that sort of thing. And then two, um, you see people who are gunning for um, a launch vehicle that might be able to lift, you know, say one metric ton of payload. Uh, and it's going to be, let's say, entirely additively manufactured or it's going to be air launched. And it, they, they declare those things to be differentiators. But that's not going to help the economics at all. The economics are a function of flight rate. Uh, if I have, let's say, if my company, if my launch company, say, costs $100 million a year to run and I launch once a year, then the price has to at least cover that cost. So that $100 million ends up in the bottom line uh, in the quote that you give to a customer. It's only by flying very, very, very frequently that you can amortize your fixed costs over a large number of flights and meaningfully lower the cost of launch. Um, so that can allow you to approach the marginal cost per launch. And then if you want to take a bite out of the marginal cost, then you go to reusability, which is uh, you know one of the reasons that we look at first-stage reusability. But in general, when you ask about threats, um, you know, I, I would expect I would expect when things shake out. Uh, sorry, actually, I'll, I'll do a go back there. You know, electrons capacity is about 150 kilograms to low Earth orbit. We think that that's right size to achieve the right flight rate that we need. Um, that's a rocket that we can easily fill up with either a dedicated small sat or a very small amount of CubeSat rideshare or some combination of the two. Um, so we can achieve a very high flight rate without having to launch a half-empty vehicle. 
um, or without having to only launch once a quarter to be able to fill up a larger capacity vehicle. And so we think that we're in the sweet spot. Of course, we're biased. Um, but when we look at the competitive landscape, um, we think that a lot of the vehicles that are mid-range, you know, the half ton to one and a half metric ton range, we don't think they're going to be able to achieve high enough flight rates to realize good pricing. And you also see announcements like from SpaceX, who are announcing dedicated small sat ride share. Um, to my mind, that's going to eat uh, a lot of that mid-range launch capacity alive. Um, I think good on SpaceX. It's a good move. Um, but we're very happy where we are providing that white glove dedicated very rapid launch service. And we think that that's a niche that we can continue to fill. I think that the recent announcements from SpaceX are going to wipe a lot of the competition away. I think there's room for maybe two or three at most dedicated small sat launchers. And I think when the dust settles, that's probably going to be, you know, we, we expect Virgin to be flying this year. We would expect Firefly and maybe Astra um, to get there, maybe relativity in a couple of years, but that's one of the ones I think is most threatened by the SpaceX announcement, to be blunt. Um, but I think I think that you're going to see I, people talk about this being kind of the next couple of years being the era of launch vehicle consolidation. And I don't think it's consolidatable. I think it's the era of launch company collapse. I think most of the competition is going to just disappear. A lot of these companies can't be meaningfully consolidated or scooped up because their approaches and their staff and their culture are oil and water with respect to each other. So I think it's going to be a big shakeout um, and it's going to be painful. And you don't wish that on anybody. Like it's sad to see Vector go away because as, as I guess, uh, as chippy as we can be about our competitors uh, back and forth from time to time, you don't wish anybody to lose their jobs. But at the same time, you know, that's that's the beginning, in my opinion. And that has ripple effects, too, uh, because I think as well, a lot of investors are looking for strong exits in these different space verticals that they've invested in. There haven't been a lot of them yet. And so as you see more and more venture-backed companies hold, especially in the launch side of things, I think it's really going to result in the well of risk capital drying out. And there will therefore be fewer and fewer launch companies that heave into existence. And, and so therefore, the, the market's doing what it should be doing and, uh, and correcting itself. But, but yeah, I, I, see, <laughs> I see a lot of blood on the floor uh, in the next couple of years, to be honest. And I think for small sat launchers, there's only going to be a handful left standing, if that. Now, now, when you say only a handful, are you talking about just the U.S. market or are you talking about the global market as well? Well, that's that's a good question, actually, because um, so right now, for example, uh, polar satellite launch vehicle PSLV services a lot of uh, the global small satellite market. Um, SSLV, which is a smaller launch vehicle, Indian as well, is coming online in the not too distant future. We'll be able to service some of the global market. There are Chinese small satellite launchers that are coming online now that can service a part of the market. But the American market obviously is not addressable by a Chinese launch vehicle. Um, so I would, I, I'd be guessing, but, um, if we want to do the guessing, I would, I would say that there's probably room for a half dozen. Um, I obviously think there's room for us, but, uh, I'm biased. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, you touched on this before, and so I'll bring it up now. Uh, earlier this month, you had a big press conference. It was uh, broadcast live, and basically the company announced its reusability plans for the Electron rocket. So, can you walk us through what the plans are? 
Sure. Um, and so there, so first of all, I'll say that there's, uh, you know, there's, there's a nice overview of this, including a video on our website. So it's rocketlabusa.com. Definitely worth visiting uh, and, and enjoying that overview. Uh, I will not be as entertaining in providing it as the video is. Uh, or as Pete Beck's press conference was. But uh, essentially, so Electron, again, is uh, two primary stages and then a small payload insertion stage or kick stage. Um, we, you know, when we launch, uh, the, the first stage separates after a handful of minutes and normally is um, disposed in the ocean. Uh, but what we want to transition to instead is that after that first stage is jettisoned, um, it would re-enter through the atmosphere it would come back down to Earth. Now, it's not moving at incredibly high velocity because it's only the first stage of the launch vehicle, so it doesn't achieve nearly the velocities like the Mach 25 or the type of velocity the second stage does. So it's a little bit more benign, but still extremely challenging. That'll come screaming back through the atmosphere, um, unpowered, at which point it would release basically a balut and a large parachute that would arrest its velocity uh, and allow it to be recovered in midair by a helicopter which is pretty cool, at which point, in my opinion, I'm biased again. It's a very technical term. It's really cool. Um, but uh, And then the launch vehicle would be ferried by helicopter to a carrier ship that would pick it up and bring it back to port, where we would take it into our shop uh, or inspect it, refurbish it, and hopefully be able to refly it um, in relatively short order. Now, when we when we did this press event in um, Utah at SmallSat this year, uh, I was actually I very much enjoyed it because our CEO got up and says exactly how difficult this is. This is this is pretty this is pretty darn hard. Um, the the aerothermal heating that the stage will experience when it comes back to the atmosphere is non-trivial. Um, you know, people people kind of looked at this and said, "Oh, you're going to catch it with a helicopter," and we say, "Oh, that's that's the least that's the least scary part." Um, the uh, and not without precedent either. Um, the so so. Contrary to, I guess, the way SpaceX recovers a booster, which is propulsive, uh, where they'll fire up their rocket and literally land on plume of rocket exhaust, uh, we're going to come down with a parachute and we're going to grab it in midair at a low relative velocity, put it up, park it on a ship, and 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 bring it back via boat. Um, and for a vehicle at our size, that's the least penalizing way to do it. Um, if we were trying to if we tried to do it the way SpaceX does it at our scale of vehicle, it doesn't make sense. So. In support of that program, over the next handful of flights, we're basically in data collection mode. We need to understand a lot about the dynamics of how that stage comes back to Earth. We need to understand a lot about um, kind of what flight, what flight, well, excuse me, its flight profile now and how we want to adjust that, um, and then refine the recovery design. Uh, eventually, attempt to have one parachute down into the water, pull it out of the water, and then culminate uh, in the ability to recover it in midair via helicopter and fly it back to a ship. So, uh, you know, we were we were very excited to reveal that and been seeing a lot of excitement and active work on that inside the company for a while. So I think a lot of people at Rocket Lab were extremely excited and proud to see um, their work kind of finally being revealed to the world. And and Peter Beck, uh, I think, was was very, um, uh, very forthright, as he always is in his presentation, where he would previously said, oh, we're never going to recover uh, the rocket doesn't make sense for us, and, and now we're in a situation where we've studied it a lot, and we've concluded that, oh, yeah, this actually might make a lot of sense. Um, so we're not afraid to change our minds when uh, we see a new reality heave into existence, and so we're going to go all in on trying to create um, you know, the world's uh, second partially reusable launch vehicle. Now, assuming this works, um, 
Can you tell me what you think might be the cost savings? I mean, you've obviously done the calculations. Uh, can you tell us what the, the cost savings might be for, for the customer down the road? Um, well, I think I think that the, the initiative here is not so much about um, being able to bring prices down or adjust prices or costs. Uh, it's really more about being able to recover a significant piece of equipment so that we can keep up with what the market is telling us it needs us to launch. Um, you know, if we're going to be able to, if we have to rebuild one of these every single time, we're going to be intrinsically rate limited. Recovery is the way that we can attack um, the production cadence, and, and it has a beneficial impact on our marginal cost as well. But this is really more about trying to keep up with the launch cadence we want to hit than changing the way that we price things. Um, the market, the market is really what's going to always dictate pricing. All right. So uh, I have a couple more questions, uh, and uh, since you are Canadian, um, these sort of relate to Canada, or they do relate to Canada. Um, last fall, uh, Kenneth Hodgkins, uh, then, and I'm not sure if he still is, but uh, the director for the Office of Space and Advanced Technology at the U.S. State Department, said on a panel uh, in Ottawa, at an Ottawa conference, that the U.S. considered Canada an emerging launching state. What are your thoughts about the efforts in Canada to build a spaceport, rocket engines, and even the lofty goals of some of these companies, startups, to eventually uh, build a, a Canadian rocket? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. Um, the I guess the short version would be I'd circle back to some comments that I made a few minutes ago, which are that um, the market doesn't need more rockets. Uh, the commercial market in particular, excuse me, does not need more rockets. It's threatening to be oversupplied. And when the music stops, there are a very small number of chairs for a very large number of people. So it's going to be tricky. And honestly, when I hear yet another launch company announced, uh, I usually respond with skepticism uh, at best. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to do. And the market probably doesn't support it. So you know, when you take those two things together, it becomes a, a almost intractable thing to try to undertake. Um, now, at the same time, the the proviso I would say. So, so I guess I would I would I, I look at the activities I see in Canada with interested skepticism. Uh, if I'm wrong, fantastic, because I want Canada to succeed in all areas in space. Uh, but I, I don't see it happening. I, I think. The only way that a Canadian alternative launch vehicle comes into existence is if it's prioritized at a national government level. Um, if Canada decides that it needs to own access to space itself, um, then this sort of thing can be heaved into existence maybe. But that's also a really scary customer to have when you are trying to stand up a very complex aerospace system. They tend to be inefficient and slow. So I, I don't see it happening, Mark. I wish I, I wish I felt differently, um, and I know a lot of people who are, you know, involved in trying to bring that into existence. I wish them every success, and I really hope I'm wrong about that. But if I were a betting man, I would bet against uh, a Canadian rocket coming into existence in this marketplace. Well, I know for some of my audience, them's fighting words. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, and I, that's like I, I was thinking in the back of my head all of the calls that I'm going to get or text messages I'm going to get after this goes live. But uh, and by and guys, I'm sorry. Now, but you can always uh, come and work uh, with 
with me at Rocket Lab. Right, so here's the thing. So yeah, so so you, you addressed the, the portion of my question towards uh, uh, building an indigenous Canadian rocket, but you know there's an effort underway to get a spaceport built in Nova Scotia. They passed mm-hmm. the environmental review, which no other entity has gotten that far uh, in Canada. Uh, their biggest hurdle at the moment is announcing their their funding, um, which is supposed to happen any time. Uh, they're supposed to start uh, construction in the spring. Uh, and they've signed up um, as a uh, launch provider, um, you know, the Ukrainian uh, uh, rocket CM4 from uh, Yuzhny. So, but uh, in terms of a spaceport, I mean, you for Rocket Lab, you've got uh, your New Zealand spaceport, you've got the uh, spaceport under develop or the pad under development in at Wallops in in Virginia. Um, I think I had read somewhere that you were also had signed an agreement to use KSC. Is that the case? Uh, no, no, no? We, no. Okay. Um, uh, so, but uh, I think you're so the Canadian spaceport or the uh, what's it called? Sorry, say again. Uh, Maritime Most Launch Services is the company. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, so I, I don't have a uh, I don't have an in depth understanding of of the background or history uh, or the specific offering that they're doing. You definitely see a lot of people pursuing or trying to stand up space sports. Um, good on them. Again, I, I wish I wish everybody who's engaged in this every success. Um, these things are tricky, and it sounds like they're further down the road than I was aware of. So good on them. Um, and if they can attract the business and uh, make a go of it, then that's fantastic. Uh, wish them, again, every success. But in terms of, because, and I bring this up because, once again, Kenneth Hodgkins, who was on this panel in Ottawa last fall, um, you know, he was he was like bullish about Canada as an emerging launching state, uh, not not to the point. He wasn't talking about Canada having its own uh, indigenous rocket, but having a spaceport or a facility where other rockets companies, providers like yourselves could come in and have an extra facility or another facility because, you know, there seems to be a backlog of, you know, can't launch out of Vandenberg because there's too much going on or same thing at KSC. You can't really get your cadence going too high. So you need a few more spaceports. And he actually, I, I do believe he mentioned Rocket Lab as, hey, wouldn't it be interesting if Rocket Lab was to, you know, use this uh, potential spaceport? So, I mean, other than the two spaceports that you, you've signed up or that you have, the one, uh, like I said, in New Zealand and the one that the, the pad that you're building in, in Virginia, is this something that Rocket Lab is, is looking for at some point, another place to launch from to keep that cadence going? Well, well it, that's a tricky one and that, that requires some crystal ball looking into. Right now, you know, we're, we're very fortunate in the sense that we have already the only privately owned orbital launch range in the world. Uh, we own our launch complex one in Machia, which gives us incredible flexibility. And again, we're licensed to fly as often, as frequently as every three days from that launch site. We'll have a second launch site by the end of this calendar year in Wallops Island. Um, you know, that's that's pretty much going to do it for us, I think for the foreseeable future. Uh, but it depends on what the market demands. We're, we'll, we'll make changes. We'll will add capability if our customers drive us in that direction. But we're not going to be wasteful. And right now, that would not be a capability I would see as necessary for our foreseeable future. But things change fast. Um, 
So that's that's that that would be my um, trying to run the gauntlet of don't look dumb, don't get fired answer. <laughs> All right. So last question. Uh, is there anything um, that I've left out that you think uh, we should have covered? Um, I don't I don't think so. The you know, there at another time and place, I think it would be very useful um, as a Canadian working in the, in the U.S. Um, I've gotten a lot of queries from students and people who are just starting their careers who think that it is impossible to break into the American aerospace community by virtue of ITAR uh, constraints. It's it's not easy, but it's a very tractable problem. And myself and a number of colleagues that I have have made that move. Um, so I would encourage your listeners, especially students or people who are just getting their careers started, who are interested in understanding how to navigate that, um, to, to reach out directly and talk to me. And I'd be very happy to help anybody try to realize their dreams and working in the aerospace industry in Canada or in the United States or, or anywhere. Um, ITAR has been uh, a troublesome thing in a lot of ways for a long time, but not only is it not only has it become more relaxed, but companies are becoming more, um, I guess, informed uh, in how to deal with it and how to hire in uh, Canadians in particular. So, yeah, I'd, I'd really want to help out any of the younger listeners or people who are looking to make those kind of transitions um, with any information they might need, uh, which is not to say I want to contribute to Canadian brain drain. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I see a lot of people who just think that that's a, an insurmountable barrier, and I want to tell them that it's not. And how would you like them to contact you? Um, yep, so... Uh, my work email address is g.bonin uh, at rocketlabusa.com. All right. Sounds great. Uh, I think uh, there will be some people who will appreci- be appreciative of that, uh, and then there will be others who will be saying, don't contribute to the brain drain. <laughs> uh, uh, and that's fair enough. There's, there's nothing I'd like to see more than more space activity in Canada, and I'm obviously a huge fan of uh, a number of the Canadian companies that exist that are trying to that – that are making a big difference in this area. Um, more space activity is good from my standpoint. That's what I care about seeing is the development of space, and that's an international thing. Well, there's lots of good activity going on in Canada. Okay, so Grant, thank you very much for being on the show. Um, as things pro- pleasure. As things progress with Rocket Lab, uh, get you back on for sure. Oh, always a pleasure, Mark, and thanks for having me. Well, that's a wrap on this podcast. Tune in next week to learn more about the Canadian federal election and what it means for the space community. If you have comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca. I read and answer all your comments in a timely fashion. You can also find SpaceQ on Twitter at Canada and Space, and we post all our articles and podcasts to Facebook. Regardless of which app you use to listen to us, we'd really appreciate if you could rate our podcast and write a review. Of course, that's only if you like us. Now, your rating and review will help us in getting the podcast widely listened to. Thank you. <laughs>